Welcome to Commonwealth Climate Talks with the League of Conservation Voters, an interview podcast seeking to highlight activists, organizers, and community leaders championing conservation and environmental justice. I'm your host, Colin Arnold, and today I'd like to introduce you to Ann Creasy, the Hampton Roads Conservation Manager for the Virginia Chapter of the Sierra Club. So thank you for coming on the show, Anne. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to yeah. be here. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's great. Uh, you know, you were one of the kind of first people that I met from uh, an org outside of LCV, because um, that's basically who I was mostly volunteering for uh, before I, I came on full time. Uh, and it is kind of a, a little bit of an anniversary of us working on uh, Earth Day stuff about a year ago with uh us and Sierra Club and Mothers Out Front and um, I think someone else. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, it, it is. It's funny how time flies. Yeah, uh, our our year of a pandemic. Uh, but you know, uh, I I feel like um, there's a you know a lot of work we've both been able to do. Uh, I you know Sierra Club does great work out there and. Um, uh, you know, I've been happy to to see the programs you guys have been putting on. Uh, but a thing I didn't know until we started thinking about, uh, you know, having you on on the podcast was uh, you got your start in just, you know, grassroots activism, uh, you know, just getting out there on your own. Uh, what was what was that like? Like, how, how did you get started? Yeah, um, it's always funny to me from where I'm sitting now to think back um, on that time of when I could say maybe like my interest in advocacy and activism work started. Um, I didn't even have that vocabulary to really refer to it at that time. I didn't really think about things in terms of being an activist. I didn't have any idea what grassroots was in that sense. <laughs> um, Cause I always thought about myself just kind of as wanting to be a teacher and studying education um, and just kind of doing, following things that I cared about and finding ways to make steps towards solving a problem or making things better. Um, and I've always been really concerned about environmental issues. Um, I think cause I just have always had a strong connection with nature. Um, and also climate change has been very looming, I think, especially for our generation. So it just kind of pushed me to follow those issues. Um, and so I would be kind of just doing things uh, with friends or other people I would connect with that cared about it. Um, and then I started to realize that organizations like Sierra Club um, and the Chesapeake Climate Action Network existed. Um, and that really changed the game for me. Um, <laughs> it was kind of like me and my, my friends were trying to do divestment work with the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, trying to get people to close bank accounts um, with banks that funded fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, and then I was approached by a Sierra Club staff person in that, and it made me realize, you know, it, it gave me that vocabulary of, of activism and thinking about the work we were doing in a more technical, big picture and not just like a hobby kind of way. <laughs> yeah, because... Like, you know, I hadn't, um, like I had never heard the term 
like, like I, I do have a, a BFA and I, you know, have done a, a lot of cultural crit, but like I had never heard narrative used the way that you hear people who do organizing use the word narrative. Uh, and there's just a lot of like tools that you like end up using that you don't even realize are, are really important to the work. Uh, and similarly, like there's, there's skills that you don't realize that, that translate so well. Uh, you know, like you, uh, uh, anybody who's run a zoom webinar like, and has done education in the past can knows like how, like, or sees how like connected those two things are. You can run a lecture, then you can, you know, host a panel for people to talk about divestment or, uh, you know, uh, green spaces or whatever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of funny too, because, you know, I was studying to be a teacher um, and in that was kind of thinking that, okay, I want to teach people, but I don't know if I want to operate within the confines of a classroom or be involved in like public education in a conventional sense. Um, because I just, I find that through like experience and passion and more specific interests, people can learn a lot. So it's funny because I discovered that kind of <laughs> like on accident, like I didn't even really consider that yeah, that this, this is learning and education still just in a different sense. <laughs> it's kind of a little, a little focused on, on very specific kind of, you know, information and skills, things that you would normally think of as like, uh, necessarily, uh, academic learning for, for the average person, but it's still like, uh, you know, I was, uh, <laughs> I was on a call planning some divestment actions for the Mountain Valley pipeline last week. And somebody brought up like, oh yeah, I didn't know anything about, uh, uh, pipelines until I met Ann Creasy from the Sierra club. And now I know a lot about pipelines. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that, that someone said that. So how do you, having both the experience of kind of doing that kind of, uh, you know, energetic on the groundwork of getting together with a couple of friends and saying, this is an issue I care about. Uh, how can we do something to change it versus working at this scope of having a bit more resources, uh, you know, having access to, you know, uh, more policy information and, you know, historic structures of, of organizing, uh, you know, what's it like being at that different scope? Uh, and how does the context kind of change how you approach organizing? That's a great question. So I feel like I want to qualify the difference between like uh, working under a, a larger organization versus something that might be considered more, I don't know, grassroots, we could say. Sometimes I use the phrase like ragtag because I just feel like it's just a group <laughs> of people getting together and it doesn't have like that same formality. But I also feel like sometimes frustrated by that because I definitely think that, and I, I know you agree with this too, because I see that you're involved in a lot more of that informal organizing that that is like, um, at the actual more legit organizing than like something that people might recognize as more legitimate because it has um, an organizational structure behind it. And I think that that is kind of like a transformation that I feel happening within the Sierra club that we're really combating with um, trying to, 
figure out how to preserve the integrity of the people who know their communities and know the problem and like fortify them rather than to domineer or co-opt. And so that's been interesting to go through that transition, especially when I came into it with like a group of friends, we could do whatever we wanted. We, you know, didn't have to think about any red tape or whatever. Cause it was like, we were making the rules and decisions together. And once you go into an organization, you realize it's much more complex. Um, but I, I think that there is a cultural shift that is switching towards changing that. So the organization is just, um, listening to communities, um, listening to people and figuring out how to direct our efforts and resources that we've compiled, like into the right hands and in the direction of what the kind of more like otherwise considered informal groups <laughs> would like to see happen. If that makes sense. Yeah, I know. I, I guess this, this gets into a specific thing I definitely wanted to ask you. Uh, I know you do a lot of community mapping, which is uh, an organizational organizational like skill and concept that I barely understand at the level that I do uh, this work. Uh, what like what can you tell me about the ways in which uh, you know you make sure that these these communities are kind of served and met, and that uh, they are they do have a voice and and are involved in in the work that you do? Yeah. Um- So community mapping really just is, it means that you're taking time to learn about and understand a community. Um, And that is always an ongoing process. I don't think you can ever say that it should really stop. But um, I've spent a lot of time, especially during um, the pandemic with, you know, at times having to slow down, taking time to just learn about the area. I I do, I focus in Hampton Roads. So um, just learning about the layout, um, what different income levels are like in different areas, where subsidized housing is, um, where the flooding prone areas are. Um, Community mapping can involve like an actual geographic assessment where you're literally looking at maps but it can also involve more abstract information getting like um, what local businesses are in the area, what churches are in the area, what schools, civic leagues, those kind of things um, to really set a good foundation to ensure that it's not, we want clean energy and we're gonna barge into this community and tell them (laughs) how they're gonna get it But instead to be like, okay, does this community even, are they worried about that right now? Perhaps there's something more severe that they need help with that's prohibiting them from even dealing with issues like climate change or pollution because there's, you know, there's a housing issue that needs to be attended to. First, let's think about how we can support them in that way, for example. So that's the long, very long answer of um, community mapping from how I understand it and the role that it's played. And like, honestly, the, the, the fact that things have slowed down um, from being so impersive, in-person intensive has provided a good opportunity to reflect on this and, and get that information gradually. 
Yeah, how, and like speaking of which, how is this like the change to virtual over the past year affected that? Uh, because like I know, uh, you know, before you we could head down to a neighborhood and flyer or you know stop people on the street and 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 see if they have time to talk or anything. But how do you how do you find how to reach people in communities when often you know. Uh, you're forced to like reach out through, through things like Facebook or social media that don't necessarily have uh, those clear geographic indicators of uh, these people are in this community. These people are in that community. Uh, how do you, how do you work around that whole virtual hurdle to, to still, you know, make sure that you're getting in contact with the right communities? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> so I think more than just the change in media, the thing that's been challenging about the pandemic and even especially in the past year with, um, I mean, frankly, it's hard to, to just bring up casually, um, but it, it happens with, um, you know, the murder of George Floyd and just how the country's been dealing with that this past year um, and the amount of loss of life that's come from COVID. Um, that it has changed that, especially when you're working on something like climate change and environment, that still is important and it is happening, but you have to change the pace of how you're engaging with people um, because they're dealing with so much. Um, and also sometimes it's not appropriate to elevate that particular issue. Perhaps, you know, like right now, it's not the time to talk to people about solar when, um, the attention and support of resources needs to be going towards elevating the fact that Black Lives Matter. It's not been the the media, the medium that's been so hard this year. It's just more like slowing down and figuring out when it's appropriate to engage people. That's been um, a challenge. And I think that we've adapted to it well um, in that we, for periods of time, would only reach out to people um, if it was COVID specific or if it was related to issues of environmental justice, um, so as to be sensitive to what was going on. Um, so those have been some of the obstacles <laughs> um, and challenges that have come up, but it's been good. It's, it's caused me to think a lot more intentionally about people in our community um, and and how we work together. I absolutely agree. Uh, I, I know we've, at least at LCV, we've had to think long and hard of like, you know, who, if, if, if we make this ask or, or we push on, on this policy, uh, who is it benefiting and is it benefiting the people that we're reaching out to right now? Um, and, and sometimes the answer was no. And so we, we canned uh, some, uh, some efforts until, you know, uh, it was a, it was a better, like, you know, a, a better time to work on that. That was more reflective with what the people, uh, in Hampton roads were dealing with. Uh, you know, we, we spent a lot of time, you know, pushing, uh, uh, support for, for relief bills and stuff instead of necessarily focusing on, uh, you know, um, uh, solar or, or, you know, sending a mean letter to, to the, the white house about what they were doing to the EPA or whatever. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it's important to, to keep that in mind, especially with, uh, you know, a lot of, 
a lot of the injustices that have been happening to to black and brown communities over the past year and and even before that that it it was a wake up call to to really like look in the face and say well is is what was focusing on making sure that solar panels get on house is really the thing we should be doing right now <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and yeah i think that's why it's it is really important that uh you know um that the the groundswell for environmental justice uh, and and intersectionality has been so important uh, and has become such kind of like a, a a household concept the the past couple of years uh, because it does mean that you know we we have people that we can look to uh, who've been talking about uh, you know issues like how um, you know uh, African American communities are more likely to have to deal with with pollution or. Uh, you know, having to rely on things like landfills being being built in their communities to to get tax money and that kind of stuff, um, which is why I'm I'm really impressed by the work that you've been doing with with workforce development uh, around uh, you know energy needs. Um, what can you tell me about uh, kind of like how uh, uh, things like uh, solar and wind energy actually can bring jobs into communities that are uh, you know. Uh, good paying jobs that, that create renewable energy and that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. So workforce development is something um, that has come out of, especially with the coastal Virginia offshore wind project being becoming realized. Um, we started to think about, okay, so we've done this work to finally get CVAL realized it's happening so now what do we do? And so then we started considering the next steps are um, trying to make sure everything's done right and fairly. Um, and so a component of that was, okay, well, this is going to involve, involve jobs and production. So we should try and ensure that that happens here. Um, and so some of our goals around that have been encouraging Ralph Northam to develop a offshore wind workforce development plan, which would basically just be a plan and strategy for how we prepare and train um, and give funding to educational institutions to get people into these jobs um, so they can be involved in the production of wind turbines at home. Um, and there's some of that that goes into solar as well. I'm still actively learning about that, trying to work with TCC to understand how we can get people trained to install solar and what funding is available to make that education free or more affordable for them, hopefully. So just learning about these things so that we can get out into the communities and make sure that people know about these opportunities. And yeah, I think that's uh, why one of the things that I am uh, excited about aspects of the the Biden Build Back Better plan is that we finally have legislators who are are talking materially about um, how we're going to combat climate change and and what uh, that looks like. You know, it's it's not just you know setting standards of oh we we need to reduce uh, you know a, a carbon expenditure by X amount by by Y year. It's instead we're we're getting down to the brass tacks of talking about. Okay, where are we going to build these wind turbines? Uh, you know, who's going to get training to uh, uh, install solar panels, and making sure that we do the work to make sure that you know um, uh, the 
marginalized people that often have have to rely on on things like uh, you know um, factory jobs and and work in the energy sector can have good reliable pay and and we're making sure that the you know the equipment that's important to make our communities function in the future is going to be built in those communities because uh, it you know it does give people a sense of like ownership. Um, and importance to to this if they if they have an equal hand in in benefiting from it. Besides just being able to say, oh yeah, well my my house rents on one hundred percent solar or one hundred percent wind now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I guess uh, that's you know again. And thank you for coming on the show. Uh, this this has been fantastic. Uh, I'm I'm glad I got you on to talk about a lot of these um, uh, a lot of the kind of more. Uh, I guess how how organizing happens and a lot of the skill sets that that goes into it. Um, I I hope it you know lets people know that this is you know both that they they're the kind of unpaid grassroots activism is one still super valued, uh, but two that if if they wanted to pursue like a, a career in in the educational side of things or or you know uh, uh, making helping organize larger programs that 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 avenue is out there for them. Yeah, absolutely. And people can even start their own nonprofits and pull in their own funds. So it's, it's just an exciting thing to think about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed talking with you. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, um, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we can have you on again in another year, uh, maybe sooner. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I always have different things to talk about. So. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed our discussion today. You can find Anne and the programs they do with Sierra Club at sierraclub.org slash Virginia. And for the month of March 2021, we are asking Virginia residents to submit comments to oppose construction of the Lambert Compressor Station. That's a key piece of infrastructure for the Mountain Valley Pipeline. You can find more info for that in the show notes. You can check out VALCV.org for more info and for more up-to-date climate actions. Our theme music is by Andrew Giotto, and our podcast is produced by me, Colin. Anyways, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day, and have a great week.